Well, some of you will know that before coming to Desert Springs Church, uh, for four years I pastored a small church in Golden, Colorado. And those were difficult years. It was mostly difficult ministry. The church never grew beyond 75 people. At times it was 50 or less. We struggled to meet our budget of $100,000 per year, which is not much for a church. When there were seasons of excitement and a bit of growth, uh, inevitably one or two families would then leave, uh, not always for bad reasons, sometimes just to be transferred out of state due to work. Some would leave because we didn't have sufficient ministry for their teenage kids. If all the people who wanted a youth group in our church had stuck around, we would have had a dynamic youth group, but they kept switching to other churches, somewhat understandably so. Less understandably so, some maligned my ministry, maligned me. Someone spread a rumor that I had stolen the church van when it was simply in the shop for repairs. Another person accused me of stealing my sermons from the internet, which, good or bad, my sermons were my own. These were hard days. It didn't seem like God was in it. We couldn't see much of His hand. It didn't seem like the kingdom of God was, was growing, sometimes maybe not even present. Thankfully, in these hard days, I had an older pastor friend out of state that I could call and spill my guts to. And he would offer advice, give me pep talks, and sometimes a rebuke. He would sometimes grab me by my figurative lapels and say, what do you think you got into this for? The money? Why did you get in the ministry? Did Jesus say this work would be easy? No, he warned us in advance it would not be easy. And then sometimes more gently than that, he would remind me of parables like those in Matthew 13. There Jesus teaches that the kingdom of God Start small, but is growing. That growth is often unseen, mysterious, but it is sure that God often does His best work with little, that He often works below the surface, out of sight. And so we shouldn't judge progress based on what we can see or by the world's metrics, real growth is happening despite the presence of weeds. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 13, starting in verse 24, where Jesus gives three parables, three parables that I have leaned on to press on in pastoral ministry, especially in difficult times. Three parables that we all need at all times, but especially when things seem small and insignificant 
and unfruitful. Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn." He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them then another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Three parables, all beginning with a similar phrase. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to, or the kingdom of heaven is like. So what are these parables, what are they about? The kingdom of heaven, or the synonym, the kingdom of God, elsewhere in Matthew. Because these are about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven before we work our way through the three parables, we should establish what the kingdom is. What is the kingdom? Because it is central to Jesus' message, not just here in these parables. Forty-three times in Matthew, we find reference to the kingdom. And in Jesus' own day, there was wide expectancy and interest in the, the kingdom of God coming But there was also great misunderstanding about what that kingdom should look like. 
Their misunderstanding didn't come out of thin air. It's that they misunderstood the timing and the nature of Old Testament promises about this coming kingdom. Take Daniel 2, for instance. In Daniel 2, there's a vision about King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, and Daniel interprets it for him. It's a vision of a huge, majestic statue, a head of fine gold, breast and arms of silver, a belly and thighs of bronze and legs of iron. But you might remember the statue has feet of clay. Feet of clay. The meaning is this. Your mighty kingdom, King Nebuchadnezzar, will eventually crumble. And then you get to verse 44 of Daniel 2. And it says, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to an end all other earthly kingdoms. But it itself will endure forever. A crushing, consuming, all-encompassing, unending kingdom. That's what people in Jesus' day were looking for. They were looking for God's kingdom coming and overturning and enveloping all the kingdoms of the world. They were looking for judgment to come on evildoers. They were looking for justice to finally roll down like waters. They were looking for Rome to be defeated, the land to be restored, all the people returned, and righteousness filling the land. John the Baptist's message reflects that kind of expectancy. Just listen to a few verses from back in Matthew 3, where John was preaching like this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's our topic, the kingdom of heaven. And what's it like? Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, John wasn't wrong about these things. He's merely quoting the Old Testament here. But he seemed to be off on the timing of these things. He didn't yet know and understand that Messiah would have two comings and that the kingdom would arrive in two stages. So it would have been surprising, and it was surprising for John and his disciples to think that they might have identified the Messiah, to be preaching the kingdom of God is at hand, but then Jesus isn't wiping out Romans. He isn't clearing out evildoers. He isn't setting up a utopia for the righteous. Instead, he's welcoming the poor, the broken, the needy. He's eating with tax collectors. He's healing the sick. He's feeding the hungry. He's forgiving sins. He says that he's gentle and lowly of heart. 
And he's being rejected and maligned and seems to be doing very little to stop it. So what gives? Or to put it another way, if you would ask people in Jesus' time, what is the kingdom of heaven going to be like? They would have said, well, John says it's like an axe. Another guy, a zealot, would say it's like a sword. A Pharisee would say, it's like a broom, because God's about to sweep house. But you ask Jesus what the kingdom of heaven is like, and he says, it's like weeds amidst the wheat. It's like a mustard seed, and it's like yeast in dough. So that sets up our three parables. The first is this. God's kingdom is like weeds amidst wheat. How so? It coexists with evil. That's the point of this first parable. God's kingdom coexists with evil. The kingdom of heaven is like a man sowing good seed, but at night his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. If that seems far-fetched, you know, who goes and sows weeds and someone's crop well it it wasn't unusual back then it bad guys in these days would often sabotage someone's crops to raise the price of their crops when they sold them there was even a, a roman law against doing this but regardless it has been done in the parable the question is what to do about it now and so the servants ask if they should pull up the crops the wise landowner knows that that'll destroy the wheat with the weeds. Scholars tell us that Jesus is probably talking about Darnell weed. Darnell weed. That's why you don't name a kid Darnell. Because Darnell weed looked like wheat. It grew as tall as wheat. But it was also poisonous to humans and animals. And so the landowner's strategy is, is because you can't tell whether it's a weed or wheat until the weed eventually has a head of grain on it, verse 30, let the two grow together until the harvest. At the harvest, the two will be properly identified and separated. Weeds will be burned and wheat will go into the barns. Now, look down in your Bibles and notice with me that Jesus tells the parable in verses 24 to 30, and then he tells two more parables for several verses. And then in verse 36, the disciples come to him in private and ask about the meaning of the first parable, the parable of the weeds, and then Jesus explains the meaning to them then. A similar thing happened last week with the parable of the four soils, told, then explained. Last week, we kept those separate. This week, I'd like to combine those just for convenience. But as we combine those, the telling and the explanation, we have to keep in mind that the explanation of the parable of the weeds was given specifically to the disciples in private in the house. Remember that dynamic from last week about who's in and who's beginning to get it, and to them, more will be given. But those on the outside, 
who aren't more than superficially interested in such things, they just get parables without explanation, which to them just sound mysterious and confusing. So what does Jesus say to the disciples who ask for an explanation? Verse 37, he identifies all the parts involved. The one who sows is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom. Weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age. Jesus insists that alongside his saving kingdom work, Satan is sowing weeds in the world. The weeds can't stop the growth of the wheat. That's encouraging. But they do distract and confuse things. Such is Satan's work. Now this parable has been used by many in church history to argue that the church is a mixed institution made up of both believers and unbelievers. Let the two grow together. And so they say we shouldn't try to distinguish between believers and unbelievers too much, not until the end of the age. But, but that misses the fact that Jesus didn't say that the field is the church. He said the field is the world. You see that? Verse 38. The church made abundantly clear elsewhere in the New Testament, is to be made up of believers. And that's why to join this church, we, we need to hear you state the gospel. We need to hear your testimony. We need to, to have some good assurance that you have believed and are saved. And you have the Holy Spirit in you whom we share. But the world, the world is filled with both wheat and weeds. And that will be the case until Jesus returns. Remember the common misconception about the kingdom in Jesus' day? That many thought that the arrival of the kingdom would include conquering and subduing of all evildoers, a new utopia of peace. They thought it would be all wheat, no weeds. Or at least a lot of wheat and very few weeds. Well, Jesus makes clear that no one should expect that. Not in this age, not to the end of the age. Let the two grow together. So we should not expect Constantine's little experiment of a Christian empire to have worked or to become a new model. We shouldn't seek out little enclaves in mountain towns to huddle up as Christians and form Christian societies. Jesus says that until the end of this age, weeds and wheat will be growing right along aside each other. As a historian by training, I just have to tell you, that every experiment to try to make a Christian pocket has failed and usually ended in embarrassing fashion. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek to have influence in our secular society. No, that's, that's Matthew 5, salt and light. 
It doesn't mean that some governments aren't better than others. No, that's, that's Romans 13 stuff. But Jesus' parable makes clear that we shouldn't expect kingdom growth to root out weeds. There will always be weeds. And it is a misunderstanding of the nature of the kingdom which tries to bring what will happen in the end to the present now. But there is an end coming. There is an end coming eventually. We don't know when. We can't hurry it up. But in the end, it will be made clear that there have always really only been two kinds of crops, two kinds of people, and now they will have two eternal fixed destinies, two very different destinies. Verse 41, the Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin, all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. There is a heaven to be gained and there is a hell to flee. Hell will be worse than any of these most graphic descriptions in the Bible could ever put into words. And heaven will be far better than this little sentence here or all of Revelation 21 and 22. It's far better than words could describe or any portrait or movie could ever portray. Hell will be completely just for those who have spurned God's ways and have not sought His mercy. And heaven will be wholly undeserved, all of grace for those who humbly admit that they are sinners in need of God's mercy and confess that God has provided that mercy in Jesus, specifically in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. Those who believe that, those who call out to God in faith confessing that, are saved, they're forgiven, they're wheat, and they're awaiting the harvest. And when that harvest comes, heaven will be theirs. They will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Amen. Is that you? Is that you? Jesus ended his explanation of this parable with this phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you hear that today? Do you hear it? I pray you do. I pray that this would be you. Those who admit that they are sinners and believe that Jesus died for their sins and rose on the third day are forgiven and heaven bound and they await the harvest. Well, secondly, the second parable is like a mustard seed. How so? It starts small but is growing. Verse 31, picking up in the middle, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds 
But when it's grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Here we have a small parable, not so much a story, just a sketch, an extended image. There's no explanation given with this parable, but there should be no explanation needed for those who have been listening to Jesus explain other parables and are beginning to hear what he's really saying. The kingdom is like a mustard seed. How so? It starts small. It goes into the ground. Change happens slowly. But eventually there is a tree. Apparently a mustard seed, technically a, a, a mustard tree, which is technically a plant, but it's almost tree-like. It, it can grow up to 8 to 12 feet. But again, it starts small, and growth is slow. And that's the surprising part. Jesus' listeners would have assumed that the kingdom of God would arrive suddenly with a clap. And its presence would be obvious to all, and it would come all at once. And yet, even though it's small at first, and though growth is slow, the end is sure. The seed is becoming a tree. A tree in which happy inhabitants are found in its nests. The tree of God's kingdom provides shade and shelter for all its inhabitants. This language of a tree providing nest and shelter with its branches for little birds and such, it's, that's language that goes back to Ezekiel 17 and Daniel 4. You can go looking for those on your own later. But the point of those passages was to promise that God's kingdom, like a giant global tree, would have room in its branches for nests for all kinds of birds, which was a foreshadow of the inclusion of the Gentiles in Jesus' kingdom. If you're not a Jew, you're among those crazy birds like me. And sure enough, that's where this thing is going. That's where Jesus is taking this kingdom in Matthew 24, he'll say, the kingdom of heaven, the gospel of the kingdom, rather, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Matthew 28, this is how this book ends. Go, therefore, and make disciples of what? All nations. This is how the book of Acts begins. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That is happening right now. It will fully happen. It starts small. It seems insignificant. Growth often seems subtle. But we've seen the end. Revelation 5. In heaven there will be a multitude which no man can number from every tongue and language and people and nation. Now let's put a pin in that right there for now 
And we'll move on in our passage, and then we'll come back to consider the implications of all three of these parables at the end. So here's the third parable, like yeast in dough. What's this one about? Well, the kingdom is unseen, but spreading. Now notice as you look down in your Bibles that verse 34 and 35, there Matthew inserts a parenthetical comment in between all the parables, which once again addresses Jesus' use of parables. It's like what Jesus did in the middle of the parable as we saw last week. So let's deal with this part in verses 34 and 35 before we think through the parable of the yeast. Verse 34, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. He said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So this is a quotation from Psalm 78, verse 2. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what is hidden since the foundation of the world. Now, Psalm 78, which Alfredo read for us, at least part of it, earlier. Psalm 78 is a historical psalm, uh, meaning it retraces key points in Israel's history. There are several of these, Psalm 105 and 106 and 135 and 136, and also 78. But why is this historical psalm introduced as a parable? That's a head-scratcher, isn't it? I will open my mouth in parables. And then something like 70 verses or so of story after story after story drawn from the Old Testament. Well, I think Matthew is suggesting that there is a parable-like quality to Psalm 78, even though it is real history, not made-up stuff. It's because Psalm 78 is more than a review of history. It's an interpretation of history. It's seeking to expose hidden meaning in the historical facts. So what's the hidden meaning of Psalm 78? Well, again, in one historical scene after another, the author juxtaposes God's faithfulness and mercy with his people's unfaithfulness and idolatry. And then the psalm ends with a word about God's faithfulness in providing King David, who will shepherd God's people. A note of hope. There's your parable. There's your parable. A parable of sorts. That's the hidden meaning of all that history in Psalm 78. And now Jesus, so says Matthew, Jesus is picking up that tradition of revealing the hidden and not just about David, the shepherd king, but as the Davidic shepherd king. Fascinating, isn't it? Uh, hopefully you'll give more thought to that later on. But now on to the third parable in verse 33. Just one verse. 
The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, leaven, often in the Bible, is a symbol for sin and decay. A little leaven leavens the whole lump is a negative saying, not a positive one. But here, in this passage, leaven is not bad. It's not bad. No, it mirrors the same lesson as the parable of the mustard seed. It's good. You don't have to be an expert in the culinary arts to see what this is picturing. Leaven, or yeast, is what makes dough rise and become bread. And not much yeast is needed. Here, a little yeast is added to three measures of flour. That's a lot of flour. It's about 50 pounds worth of flour. So obviously, this is not for daily bread for one family. This is for a big wedding banquet or for a small village to enjoy. But the point is the smallness and hiddenness of the yeast permeating this massive amount of dough. The nature of Christ's kingdom is that it starts small, is at first hidden, but eventually it so thoroughly fills and affects everything. So let's now zoom out and think of the implications of these parables. Remember, the kingdom of God grows, but not without opposition, human and satanic. There will be weeds along with the wheat. Remember that the kingdom starts small, that it's not all that special, that growth is often slow, The kingdom is like farming. You plant seeds and you wait. It takes patience. But it is sure. One day there will be a tree big enough for all the nations to dwell in its branches. Remember, the kingdom here is unseen at first, below the surface. But it it spreads mysteriously unspectacularly, but inevitably, and eventually, completely. That is not what most people in Jesus' day expected about the kingdom, but it was exactly what was happening. These images in three parables are fitting images for what we've already seen in Matthew so far. From Jesus' birth into poverty to his family being on the run when he was an infant to growing up in Galilee in backwoods Nazareth. Remember, they said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? To being the son of a carpenter to having nowhere to lay his head. He chose fishermen and a tax collector 
as his emissaries and representatives. That was his crew. He'll be betrayed by one of them, denied by another. He'll be handed over to and crucified by Gentiles. And then his disciples will scatter. This is his kingdom. It, it looks small. It seems weak. It is unspectacular. It is not what you'd expect. But from these seeds in the ground, from this little bit of yeast, amidst these weeds, little sprouts begin to pop through the soil. And so you think through the book of Acts, kind of the next chapter in the Jesus story. And on the day of Pentecost, 2,000 people were converted to Jesus in one sermon. That's spectacular. That's like a, a burst of sprouting life popping through the soil. But then you keep reading in the book of Acts, and, and a lot of it's more common than that. The successes are a bit smaller than that. What's the kingdom of heaven like in the book of Acts? It's Pentecost, yes. It's also a conversation with a jailer in Philippi. And he believes. And so does his family. It's a conversation down by the river with a few ladies. And one of them, Lydia, believes. And then she houses a church in her house for years to come. It's a sermon to the Greek philosophers in Acts 17, where most of them scoffed at what Paul said. But, but, but a few of them said, let's talk about this again some other time. A lot of sermons ending with being chased out of town or even being beaten or imprisoned. Persecution in one town means the expansion of the gospel to the next town. The whole last fourth of Acts' 28 chapters has Paul on trial, imprisoned, but testifying about Jesus before magistrates. And how does the book of Acts end? Do you know this? I love it. It's so beautiful. It ends with Paul still imprisoned for two more years, but he's able to have a steady stream of visitors while he's imprisoned. And so it says that he was proclaiming the kingdom of God to anyone who would come by, proclaiming to them the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance, period. End of Acts. In fact, in the Greek, the original, the last word in the book of Acts is unhindered. Paul kept speaking of the kingdom and of Jesus unhindered while in prison. Acts records Paul getting as far as Rome, and that's pretty good for the first generation of Christians for the gospel to spread from Jerusalem to Rome. 
But soon Christianity spread all over the Mediterranean world and then into Europe and then down to Africa. Eventually to Ireland and England, then Norway and Thailand. In the 17th century, Christians from Great Britain began coming to America to give the gospel to Native Americans. And yes, some of them did other things that weren't so good, but that was good. In 1853, a missionary, Hiram Walter Reed from New York, headed west and headed down the Santa Fe Trail. He came to Albuquerque and he planted First Baptist Church of Albuquerque. And then 98 years later, First Baptist of Albuquerque planted Hoffmantown Church. And then in 1989, the youth pastor of Hoffmantown Church felt led to plant another church in Albuquerque. They called it Riverview Fellowship. Riverview Fellowship would later change its name to Desert Springs Church. In 2013, Desert Springs Church would send missionaries to a small port city in North Africa where only a few Christians were known to be. And now there's a church there. Now there, there is a mission team there, which is the largest mission team in that area among the, the pioneer missionaries. But the work... The work there in North Africa, no surprise, over these nine years has been slow, really slow. It's like farming. It's like dropping seed and waiting. So much has happened by God's grace. And so much more is needed. We certainly can't coast now. There are still 7,400 people groups which are classified as unreached with the gospel. No, many of us will have to go to new places, other places. And for those of us who stay, we'll have to send them and support them. The work is far from done. But whether we go or whether we stay, don't forget how it happens. Don't forget how the kingdom grows. Don't forget how it is happening here in our midst, Desert Springs Church. How does the kingdom grow in our midst? One conversation at a time. One Sunday at a time. One sermon at a time. One prayer at a time. One song at a time. One meal at a time. One generation to another. That is mustard seed stuff. It looks small. It seems significant. It seems insignificant. But it's the stuff of Christ's kingdom. Do you have eyes to see it? Would you pray that God would enhance the radar, a spiritual radar that you have for mustard seed kingdom things. All this should be a great encouragement to parents of 
little kid still at home. Your work seems small and slow and not special, not seen, not noticed, certainly not explosive, not in any positive ways. But remember that Jesus said that this is exactly what the kingdom would be like. So when our labors seem small and insignificant, hidden or even opposed, let's not assess things according to the world's standards or by the world's metrics. Let's trust him. He will do it. He is doing it. And when he does it, we will just stand back and stand in awe because he does it. It's not us. When there is fruit, when there is prosperity, when you're in a new building space and you got a new foyer that's real fancy, oh, we remember what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a mustard seed. It's like leaven in a big lump of dough. And so we sing with old Martin Luther, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, who is in heaven, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us what we need every day. Forgive us when we sin. Keep us from temptation. Deliver us from evil. Build your church, Lord Jesus. Do it here. Do it among us. Give us more of it, more of yourself, and help us to trust you. And we will give you all the glory. Amen.